What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about people like the former Democrat in Pennsylvania who explained to the L.A. Times that she was voting for Trump because she was, quote, tired of the Democrats' political correctness, close quote. What exactly does that mean? Layla Lalami will explain later in the show. Also... We're still thinking about Prince, who died last Thursday. He was only 57. Richard Kim will comment. First up, we had primary elections this week in five states. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. And his new book is People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy. We're speaking with him today from our satellite studio. John Nichols, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. Well, let's start with the Republicans would you say Donald Trump did pretty well on Tuesday in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, Connecticut, and Rhode Island? If I was a candidate for president, I would like to do that well. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just, it's kind of amazing because um, just as everybody has gotten everything politically wrong about Trump in this campaign, now people are actually getting numbers wrong, right? Because they said initially, oh, well, you know, the guy, he's, he's got a following. We accept that. You know, we thought he was going to collapse. We thought he was going to go away, but he's got a following. It's about 35%. Well, do you know that in, in all these states that voted Tuesday, he was over 50%. In a number of them, he was over 60%, edging towards 70 in some places. And this is the big deal. He ran so well in places where the party establishment could block him that when you heard, you know, like Pennsylvania delegates who were elected with a sort of free ride, they could they can go where they want. When you heard them talking Tuesday night, they were talking about back in Trump because the voting in their areas was so overwhelmingly for Trump that, you know, they, they weren't going to mess with that. This was an incredibly significant election day for this guy because he's now had two Tuesdays in which he exceeded expectations, number one. Yeah. And his, the opponent that his incredibly silly and kind of politically naive opposition bet on, Ted Cruz, underplayed expectations. Ted Cruz didn't just lose to Donald Trump. In most instances, he lost to John Kasich. Oh. In Trump's victory speech and uh, press conference, uh, he gave us a preview of his campaign uh, in the fall against Hillary. He bashed uh, the Bill Clinton administration for signing uh, NAFTA, which, of course, led to the export of good manufacturing jobs. And he uh, described Hillary as a candidate bought by Wall Street. Of course, these are 
familiar themes that have gotten millions of votes for Bernie. Uh, how effective do you think Trump might be in recruiting Bernie Sanders supporters to vote for Trump in November? Not very effective. I don't think it's going to happen. Sanders and Trump both have an appeal, right, you know, to working class voters, but it's frankly to different working class voters. And, and I think this is an important thing to understand. Of course, there may be some overlap in a few places, but what, what we need to understand is there really is a conservative working class, if you will. These are people who, are, who work in factories. They may work in unions. They may work in non-unionized jobs. Uh, but they were the people who were sort of the natural Reagan Democrats. And those people, I think there is a real appeal with Trump. But we need to understand that, that folks who kind of fall into that old Reagan Democrat model forget that we're 30-some we're years on. And so we also have a working class now, a younger working class, and these are folks who you know, were, have been disproportionately strong supporters of Sanders, who are for gay rights, who are supporters of civil rights, who understand the importance of Black Lives Matter, who recognize that immigrants aren't the enemy, who really do get these globalization issues, not in the kind of, you know, like, trumped-up slogan way, but who actually understand what's going on. And, and so I don't see a huge danger that a great mass of Bernie Sanders voters are going to go over and vote for Donald Trump. This is one of the reasons why, you know, I would suggest that it is important for Hillary Clinton to work with and listen to Bernie Sanders, not in the kind of like sort of pop psychology thing of, oh, make his supporters feel good or attract his supporters. I don't think that's the heart of the matter. There may be some Sanders people for whom that will matter a lot, but I think the deeper thing is that Sanders' touch has touched in this campaign on something that is real, and when you suggest that Hillary Clinton ought to pay deeper attention to these, these fundamental concerns about economic issues, instability, low wages, lack of opportunity, deindustrialization. It, it isn't just to attract Sanders people. It is for that November race to you know, be in that race as a real counter to what Trump is putting. Pennsylvania was the big one this week. Um, the L.A. Times had some interesting statistics. They reported that in 2016, in Pennsylvania, we are seeing, I'm quoting, one of the most sizable shifts of partisan allegiance ever seen in the state. 61,500 Democrats have become Republicans in Pennsylvania so far this year, part of a jump in Republican registration in the last year of 145,000, more new Republicans than in the previous four years combined. Uh, and it's these former Democrats who, uh, of course, are the Trump supporters. Uh, how uh, we've already talked a little bit about the different kinds of working class people, but doesn't this this kind of growth move of Democrats to the Republican Party have to worry Hillary? Sure, it should worry anybody, and, and it's it's a relevant reality, uh, but it's not one that is necessarily definitional. The, the bigger thing, though, is that, you know, there are just a lot more voters who come out in November who do not participate in primaries. They, you, you, we really need to understand this, that November turnout in a presidential year 
is dramatically boosted. Of that much broader universe of people that come out, you're going to have uh, more working class people, but they're going to be people of all races, uh, of all backgrounds, and so a lot of them are going to be you know, very troubled by Trump. He's not necessarily going to be a natural fit for them. If Democrats uh, develop a message that is at once unifying, that is a solidarity message that says, you know, look, we're not against people of color, we're not against uh, immigrants, we're not against gays and lesbians, we actually embrace these communities as part of a whole America, we embrace women as part of, a, of an American future, a Democratic Party that says that and that combines that message with an understanding of the economic uncertainty of the economic pain that a lot of people are in and from all sorts of backgrounds has tremendous potential to do very, very well. Uh, but you do have to put those two pieces together. And again, I think that that is doable. I think that rather than spending an immense amount of time chasing after the people who have already made that step from the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, because they maybe actually really are enthusiastic about Donald Trump. I think you have to acknowledge that some of that, those folks are going to be there. That's, that's where they're at. Worry about the broader electorate, the much bigger electorate that comes out in November, and have a message for them. I think that's, that's really the lesson that you get from this. One of the striking things that the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, did in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, and that points towards a possible future for Bernie and the Bernie movement uh, after the convention and after November. Bernie endorsed three candidates for the House and turned to his donor list of millions of people to raise money for, for them. These were you know, Bernie-type uh, candidates for Congress in New York, Nevada, and Washington State. Uh, do you think Bernie uh, uh, is has the interest or the ability to keep this sort of thing going seems to me there should be more than three bernie endorsed candidates uh, and there should be a lot more uh, two years from now is that is that on the horizon for bernie do you think well i'm not going to try and get in the guy's mind uh, that's uh, you know he'll he'll make some choices there himself but i think it was a very powerful move i mean what you saw in his uh, fundraising for Zephyr Teach Out in New York for um, uh, Lucy uh, Flores, Flores yeah. uh, in, in Nevada and Pramila Jayapal out in Washington State was, um, was pretty remarkable. I mean, quite a bit of major support, major aid to these three women who are running as, you know, big reformers, big, you know, economic and social justice advocates in a small donor model as a counter to big money at this point. What you are going to need for new candidates and for candidates who may not be as well known is a, you know, some sort of uh, process of vetting, some sort of process of, you know, steering people toward these new candidates. In a circumstance like that, of course, someone like a Bernie Sanders, someone like an Elizabeth Warren, I mean, these folks have tremendous uh, potential to help a, a new generation of insurgent candidates get the baseline money they need uh, to transform congressional races, Senate races, you know, other races around the country. And in so doing, you know, not just to change the Democratic Party, but potentially to change, you know, the country as a whole, politics as a whole. It's a big deal. 
On that theme, Hillary, in her uh, victory speech after Tuesday's primaries, uh, addressed uh, uh, Bernie's people directly. She said, quote, I applaud Senator Sanders and his millions of supporters for challenging us to get un- unaccountable money out of our politics and giving greater emphasis to closing the gap of inequality. I know that together we will get that done, close quote. I wonder if Bernie's supporters really believe that if Hillary is president, we will get unaccountable money out of politics. She's certainly not doing it right now. No, she's, that is not the choice that she made going into this race. There are steps that can be taken, uh, even at this late stage, uh, by a candidate, Clinton, and by other Democrats to distinguish themselves from, you know, just the general candidate who takes, you know, whatever money they can get a hold of. One of those steps is to actually start to draw lines as regards what kind of money you will take from who to, you know, do pledges, I'm not going to take fossil fuel money, to do a pledge that, you know, you're just not going to take money from certain banking interests. And yes, does that make it harder? No doubt about it. But that also, those are the steps that begin to open up, even on the part of a candidate who has gone for bigger money. They begin to open up uh, a sense that for smaller donors, yeah, okay, this is a place I might want to step into. I might want to fill the void and tell a candidate who is refusing all fossil fuel money, for instance, or all fossil fuel industry money, that, you know, I'm going to help, you know, I, I see something there, I see value in that. What, what we think of or what I think of as a reform constituency in this country are people who are incredibly fed up with what they see as a rigged politics and a rigged economy. And increasingly they're voting on that. And the Democratic nominee ought to be recognizing that and figuring out ways to connect. John Nichols, com. John, thanks as always. Great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. We're still thinking about Prince, who died April 21st. He was only 57. For comment, we turn to Richard Kim. He's executive editor of The Nation. In his piece, The Prince of Sex, was the most read story at thenation.com for many days. Richard is also co-editor of the New York Times bestselling anthology Going Rouge, Sarah Palin, an American Nightmare. And he's appeared on MSNBC with Chris Hayes, with Melissa Harris-Perry, and also on CNN, NPR, Democracy Now!, and other shows. And he's also taught at NYU in Skidmore. We reached him today at the Nation offices in New York. Richard Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, John. Well, you were a kid growing up in the 80s. What was that like for you? You know, let's put this in context. So Reagan has just won the presidency. The counterculture is defeated. You know, disco is dying. The gay men who listen to disco are starting to die in cities across America. You have uh, genres of music like soul, R&B, relegated to urban markets. And, you know, the whole culture's project at that moment was to, I think, reassert order, to reassert boundaries, to beat back the forces of liberation. And so as a child, you know, growing up in that, um, you absorb that, even if you don't really understand what is happening. And you begin to really draw some limits and boundaries on yourself. And um, I think just as a 
as an experience. Um, for me, it was a very restrictive uh, period. You say fear of sex affected your whole way of being as a kid. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think uh, as a child, you grow up and you, you see the images of people with AIDS on television. Um, you don't really know what that means. You don't even really necessarily know what sex is, um, but you know it leads to that. And, you know, then the whole, uh, you know, cultural project, I think, really of casting sex as a dangerous thing, a bad thing, um, you know, that was really in the, in the air. Um, so what changed all that for you? You know, for me, it was hearing 1999 on the radio. I had no idea who was singing it. Um, I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. It seemed like several people were singing it. Um, I didn't know if the singer was black or white. But what I heard in that song and in those lyrics um, was the idea of pleasure. Um, and pleasure as a good on its own. Um, something to be pursued, um, something that could bring you joy, something that wasn't just going to lead to death, um, something that couldn't be controlled. Um, and that was just totally explosive for me as a child. And I think it became a really important part of my personality and my psyche. So let's listen. Prince's 1999 It didn't occur to me at the time, but I just learned people thought 1999 had a, had a political theme, that it was a warning against Reagan's threat of nuclear war. Uh, the sky was all purple. There were people running everywhere trying to run from the destruction. So we should party now like it's 1999, because by 2000, we'll all be dead. Everybody's got a bomb, he says. Did this occur to you at the time? You know, I don't think it occurred to me quite in that way. Um, I obviously wasn't listening, um, you know, with an adult uh, mind. But I, I, I definitely think the idea that of, of a post-apocalyptic dance anthem, you know, mm -hmm. came across yes. to me. And, and, and the sense that um, amidst, you know, all the pain and all the dangers of the world, to dance, you know, was something revolutionary um, to insist upon. Uh, that pleasure, even at the end of days, um, that comes across not just in the lyrics, but in the in the music and in his persona. Has the meaning of 1999 changed for you lately? Absolutely. Listening to the lyrics, you know, I have a much better sense of the historical context. You know, clearly Prince is referencing um, the Cold War, as well as, you know, I think uh, the, the sort of movement against sexual liberation um, at the time. But, you know, I, 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 there's a part of me that will just always appreciate hearing it as a kid, you know, on the radio and being drawn to that um, without really knowing what it, what it meant. I think we have to talk about Little Red Corvette, also from 1982. Let's listen first. It was Saturday night. I guess that makes it all right. Saturday night, I guess that makes it all right. You say what? 
So what Prince says in Little Red Corvette is slow down, not so fast. That's pretty unusual to hear from a man. Yeah, I think Prince Prince's sexuality was so uh, varied. He could be yearning. Um, he could be ecstatic. Um, he could be wounded, vulnerable. I think he explored romance, sex, sensuality um, better than really any musician um, you know, in the in the 20th century, I can't think of someone, um, and that includes people of his of his era, like Madonna, like Michael Jackson, um, that so thoroughly excavated the erotic, um, and that is, uh, you know, I just think it, it, there's a genius to that, and uh, there's a there's a political message there in exploring that to such depth during the 80s. Little Red Corvette was Prince's biggest hit. It played a lot on MTV. These were the days of music videos on MTV. And Prince was only the second black artist to be featured on MTV. Uh, Was it important to you that Prince was black? You know, it's interesting. Uh, When when David Bowie, um, who who we lost also this year... um, uh, gave an interview early on MTV. And uh, the one thing he noted with the interviewer was that you don't see black performers, with the exception then of Michael Jackson, some Stevie Wonder. And Prince really was relegated to, to, the, to the evening slot, the late night slot, because he was perceived as too dangerous, um, even for MTV at that moment. And of course, we know later on um, that his song, Darling Nikki, was named by Tipper Gore in the Filthy 15. Um, this was a list of songs that uh, her and her organization found you know, too explicit. A couple of Prince's protégés, Sheena Easton and Vanity, also had songs on that list. But yeah, you didn't you didn't see a lot of black artists on uh, on MTV at the time, or even on the radio. And those that you did, you know, let's take Lionel Richie. I just don't know what he was he, that he had all that much to say. And I think Prince was dangerous because he had so much to say. Uh, one more thing on Little Red Corvette. Maybe you saw that Chevy ran a full-page ad in six newspapers uh, last week. I did. Showing an old Corvette happened to be red, and the text was, Baby, that was much too fast, 1958 to 2016. They consider that classy and not commercial because the word Chevrolet did not appear in the ad. What did you think? Yeah, you know, I, I thought that was in, in poor taste, you know, particularly since I think Prince throughout his career, you know, resisted commodifying himself in, in a lot of ways. You didn't see him, you know, do all the endorsements and you didn't see him, you know, certainly he could have cashed out a lot more on his uh, on his songs than he did. And of course, he fought, uh, the, you know, the record recording industry for uh, for many years um, over a contract that he wanted to get out of, including changing his name um, to an unpronounceable symbol, uh, a glyph in order in order to do that. Well, Prince has been politically very good on most issues, but not on gay politics. Uh, that must have hurt. Yeah. I, so this stems from an interview um, he did for a, a New Yorker article in 2008 um, by Claire Hoffman. It was called Soup with Prince, which is a great title on its own. Um, and he gave um, some some kind of elliptical remarks pointing to the Bible at a certain point and saying, um, you know, basically uh, people are sticking it everywhere and God came down and he just cleaned it all out. Apparently, provingly, um, later his his camp um, said that he was misquoted and and he was just um, 
you know, talking about something else at that moment. Um, it is true that later on he, he refused to really come out on, on gay marriage. Um, he became a Jehovah's Witness, as we know, in 2001. Yeah. Um, that was discovered, actually, because he was actually proselytizing door-to-door in Minneapolis. So wow. you can imagine Prince just showing up um, with, the, with the copy of the Watchtower oh, to your man. house. Um, but, you know, this is, this is the way I think about it. Um, there are a lot of gay people in the world. Um, there are a lot of gay allies in the world. Um, that's quite common. Prince was a gay icon, um, and those people are generational. Um, they come about you know, once, once, twice, uh, you know, in a lifetime. And and the function of gay icons aren't to be gay or to be gay friendly. Even they exist to be a gateway to an alternative universe. You know, one that really lets you imagine a different possibility, a different way of living. Um, and Prince, whether he likes it or not, was a gay icon. His existence marks the condition of gayness itself. Richard Kim. Richard, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Next up, the Republicans' favorite talking point, political correctness. For comment on that, we turn to Layla Lalami. She's a columnist for The Nation. Her essays and opinion pieces have appeared in The New York Times, The L.A. Times, The Washington Post, and The Guardian. Her novel, The Moore's Account, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and she just won a Guggenheim Fellowship. Layla Lalami, welcome back, and congratulations on the Guggenheim. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hear a lot about political correctness from Republicans this season, especially from Donald Trump. How does he use the term? Donald Trump has turned political correctness into essentially a a license to insult. He uses it against anyone who disagrees with him. So, for example, when he uh, announced his uh, candidacy for the presidency um, back last summer, he had said that he thought that Mexico was sending uh, its worst people over here, uh, that they were potential rapists and criminals and drug dealers. Um, And then when people called him on those comments, he immediately said, well, you're just, you know, this is a very sad position of, of being politically correct. And I think since then, he's pretty much used it as um, a defense against anyone when he uh, makes offensive comments, even when it's not um, in response to a comment, even if it's a question of policy, he responds with political correctness. So if somebody brings up torture, uh, which is illegal, not to mention immoral, he'll say, well, you know, we have to stop being politically correct. If somebody says, well, how should we deal with ISIS? We have to stop being politically correct. Um, when he suggests uh, banning Muslims and people are like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, we, this isn't politically correct, but it's the right thing to do. And this term political correctness, I have to admit, I don't have any friends on the left who actually use the term political correctness. Do you know where this came from or what it's supposed to mean? Well, it's interesting. It's one of those terms that you never hear anybody say, I am politically correct and I'm proud of it. Just right. as you would never hear somebody say, I'm elite 
I'm part of the elite in this country and I'm proud of that. Nobody says that. Everybody wants to be on the side of the common folk. Everybody wants to be the side on the side of the hardworking people. So political correctness really is a term that dates back to the cultural wars. And, and at the time, it was used as um, a descriptor for a particular kind of, um, how should I put it, a particular kind of blindness. So people are particularly people on the left maybe or don't wish to be too critical of certain groups and they do and they don't want to be critical because they want to be correct they want to be politically correct and true to the to their leftist credentials but really right now and particularly since the start of this election season it has come to mean anything and anybody who it's used against anybody who disagrees with Republicans and and particularly it's deployed to defend um, bigotry against certain groups. Yeah, my favorite example that you quoted in your column on this was Donald Trump lamented that ISIS terrorists were, quote, cutting off the heads of Christians, close quote, but we, uh, quote, are too politically correct to respond in kind, close quote. I mean, how many things are wrong here, but <laughs> name a few. <laughs> No, it's really troublesome. Now, when you look at that statement on its face, you can interpret it to mean he means we should be cutting off the heads of terrorists, which I'm not sure why that's a more appropriate response than what the U.S. is currently doing, which is that it's bombing them. I mean, perhaps that he feels that the U.S. should be in the business of creating the same videos that ISIS is creating and distributing them in the same way that ISIS is distributing them. I mean, that's that's basically what he's saying. But if you take that thought all the way through, um, ISIS practices a number of other things uh, that are indefensible, including things like sexual slavery. So is the U.S. then supposed to respond in kind by practicing that against other people as well? I mean, it just makes no sense that that in order to to counter these terrorists, that we must become these terrorists. And if we refuse to do that, then somehow we are being politically correct. That's complete foolishness. Donald Trump isn't the only uh, Republican presidential candidate who has adopted the political correctness phraseology. Ted Cruz has also picked this up, hasn't he? Yes, he has. In fact, if, if you if you go back to how the, the campaign has unfolded, you'll notice that he was one of the first, Trump was one of the first to sort of deploy the term. But as he started gaining in the polls uh, and as he constantly reminded people that he was anti-establishment, his rivals also sought to use, to borrow the same language, that they are anti-establishment and that they are anti-political correctness, that they are truth tellers in some way. And so Ted Cruz, when he was asked about selective service uh, and whether women should be registering for it, he said that having women serve in the in the front lines of combat makes no sense at all. He didn't want this for his daughters, and he doesn't think that uh, the military should be governed by political correctness. And you have to stop and wonder, would this having women serve uh, in combat have anything to do with political correctness? But again, the the... This isn't so much about logic. It's not so much about whether the term applies. It's basically become a defense against anyone who says, well, maybe you shouldn't be having this policy. Oh, well, you're just being politically correct. So the way uh, Trump in particular uses the term political correctness, he means it's, it's basically it's a virtue for him 
to insult other people. But what's his response when people criticize him? Oh, that's when you realize that this is all just rhetoric. When you look at how he responds to even the mildest forms of criticism. So this, and and you can look at the whole gamut of how he responds. So for example, if somebody protests in his rallies, how he has them escorted out and how that has turned into a whole sort of spectacle. But even beyond that, he has said uh, that if he were to be elected president, uh, he would expand libel laws. So he said that um, if if one of the uh, big national newspapers like the New York Times or, or the Washington Post wrote what he called a hit piece, um, then he would sue them uh, because he would have changed the laws. He would sue them and, and win money um, instead of having no chance of winning because they're totally protected which is extremely frightening when he thinks that the press being protected is a bad thing. I mean, it's, <laughs> and it is called the First Amendment for a reason. You know, it protects their right to be able to, uh, to report on what he's doing. So it's really kind of illuminating um, when somebody who portrays himself as being anti-establishment, politically incorrect, a truth teller, someone who's going to tell you things exactly how they are without any embellishment, comes right out and says that if he were to be elected president, he would expand libel laws. So he's basically telling you what he thinks exactly about um, uh, free speech. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keillor. One of the greatest movies ever made by a Minnesotan was and set in Minnesota is the Coen Brothers film Fargo. What is John Kasich's position on Fargo? <laughs> I never knew he had one uh, until it emerged some weeks ago. Somebody pointed out that in his book, uh, John Kasich describes uh, going one night to Blockbuster Video. Remember those? And oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> And the clerk uh, recommended Fargo, saying it was a great movie. And so John Kasich brings it, brings it back home, starts watching it with his wife, and he's completely horrified. He finds it graphic and brutal. All right, you know, many of us, I mean, maybe the Coen brothers are not everybody's cup of tea. And, you know, who amongst us has rented something from Blockbuster and decided they didn't like it? But he went further as governor. He tried to get the the movie actually taken off the shelves of Blockbuster. So I know there is that famous scene with the wood chipper. Uh, you know, it's a movie, but yes. gra- it is graphic and It is and violent. extremely graphic. Yeah. So isn't what Kasich is proposing here some kind of trigger warning for Republicans with delicate sensibilities? Yes. You know, I mean, God forbid you should see somebody being fed into a wood chipper as uh, as we saw in Fargo uh, when, when you know, on the other hand, you turn around and support things like the Iraq war, you know, better not see that violence up close. <laughs> Uh, and another interesting uh, case that you cite in your new column, uh, Ted Cruz said recently in his speech to, to APAC, the Israel lobby in the United States, that he would cut off federal funding for any colleges or universities that uh, adopt proposals coming from the BDS movement, such as 
I don't know, divesting from Israeli companies. What do you think about that promise of his? Well, the, he, he said uh, in his speech that he would craft fund, funding to any schools that financially support the BDS movement. So you can interpret that whichever way you want. But what's really interesting is that uh, Republicans are always up in arms about things like trigger warnings that you just mentioned and, um, and how political correctness has this huge hold on U.S. campuses and how young people really are coddled and are not exposed to points of view that are um, uh, dissenting. And so they're not really able to form strong opinions. They're just being brainwashed by the faculty. And so on the other hand, you see that Ted Cruz is goes to APAC and makes this speech, which is essentially saying that uh, nonviolent opposition to Israeli policies is just not an acceptable form of free speech, according to him. So this is all just an attempt to place certain parameters, certain limits on free speech, whether it's in our political discourse or whether it's in on, on campuses or, or anywhere else. Leila Lalami, read her column on political correctness at thenation.com. Leila, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.